Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ricky Bibby. Ricky heads up RB Care Homes, a specialist care company that takes on and turns around failing residential nursing and dementia care homes across England and Wales and reverts them into to fully compliant services. Ricky, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us. Now, uh, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership and I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, no less, and the need for leaders of, of course, businesses, organisations, governments and communities to feel their Mm -hmm. way through what is ultimately uncharted territory for us all. Um, So for somebody, of course, working with care homes very much on the front line of the pandemic, how has it been trying to navigate the last few months? I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous in that respect. Absolutely has. Um, it's something that in my 20-year career in healthcare, we never anticipated and, you know, could never have guessed or even planned for. But um, lucky in the sense that um, we're all quite pragmatic as a team and because we're used to thinking on our feet and have the resources available and we, we make our own for bespoke systems that we've managed to come out, you know, we say at the fingers crossed out the other side. Um, we've all literally, I think myself and my team have been on call, to be fair, probably for the last four months, um, just, you know, helping staff um, mentally through this, residents, families, you know, families that couldn't see loved ones um, when residents had, you know, were there at end of life. Um, it's been a real pressure cooker of the time. Um, but I've been in, in a lucky position where actually I've been approached by um, many people from the public and from the private sector to actually uh, give our perspective on what was going on and a- enable the country to kind of move forward. I mean, the, the testing that um, has occurred within the care homes and our key staff wasn't there. And if it wasn't for people like ourselves pushing it forward and actually willing to put our views out there, I don't think it would have happened when it did. Um, we lost a lot of um, residents to a lack of testing. And it's something that we kept on pushing with authorities on a daily, daily basis. And we're told... Initially, we were told that's not what we're going to do. You can meet the needs of these people coming out of hospital. You must take them. You know, you have the registration, etc. Um, and then we were kind of faced with, well, okay, but let's put systems in place. So we'd put our own systems in place. But initially, we we're looking at isolating residents coming in, say, for seven days. And then as time went on, we we're thinking seven days wasn't enough because obviously the way this um, virus was evolving, nobody actually could predict anything. We didn't even realise at that stage how much it could linger on hard surfaces. It's not something it was just airborne. Um, so we really have worked right through it, put our own systems in place. We were one of the first providers actually to put all our homes on lockdown. We explained to families, we've kept them updated. I mean, we've put in all sorts of facilities, Skype, um, you know, video messaging, um, Facebook, whatever we could to allow families to keep in communication with their loved ones. But the priority, the absolute priority, was to keep the residents and our staff safe. Um, And we've done that as best best we could. Um, And we have been commended for that as well up and down the country. And has you've had to adapt to this sort of new reality and cope with the challenges of the COVID situation? Would you say that there's anything that this experience of crisis management has actually taught you as a leader within your profession? Um, well, you hit the nail on the head. It's crisis management is what we do um, as a team at, at RB Care Homes. Um, it's, it's just shown us how much there is a need for contingency planning. Um, one of the basic things we always have, a, like I've always said to staff, have a plan A, B and C. But at the moment, I think we've gone all the way to X, Y and Z um, just to see you know, what's going on, what needs to be done. And it was very much led by staff feedback, residents. You know, we, we kind of, we didn't leave it isolated and just sit at the top and thinking, oh, this is what we think should be happening. We were there very much hands-on as far as we could be to enable staff, give them the tools, give them as much as they could have and even mental support. You know, there was residents when we had homes in lockdown, residents were, were passing away at, at a rate that none of us had seen before. You know, sometimes you'll see a resident pass away, maybe one or two residents in a month. 
Um, but they, they, they were staff were kind of going through this, and it was it was on a daily basis, in a weekly basis, and it's something they were not prepared for. Um, and again, this is something I I spoke to um, the CQC and CIW about, and CQC actually has put in uh, plans um, and systems to help um, care staff with the um, mental anguish and stress that they've gone through. So it, it has made a difference, and I think it's really important us as leaders. Um, and as providers, and especially in healthcare at the moment, to really step up. And, you know, it's our, it's our civil duty to say, look, you know, we're not just running businesses here, which we're here providing service for the community, for, you know, for everyone um, to work together. And I think we really have done. And going forward, it, it's not going to change. It, it's going to have to build on what we've learned. We can't go back to how systems were. Um, even with the support from local authorities, et cetera, has been quite haphazard. And I'm not playing the blame game. I'm nowhere where none of us are going to point the finger. Nobody was prepared, okay? Mm. But I think us as providers, I think we were probably a little bit more prepared than the authorities and even the government because we have to have contingencies in place. For example, if you can't get a food delivery, you've got to ensure you've got enough stores in place. You've got to ensure there's petty cash on site. The staff can literally run down to the local store and bring what they need to bring. The deliveries are not there. All those things we had to put in place. Um, already we had in place, but we actually utilised those. But even though it was still a lot of pressure on the staff and us as a business, um, we've all realised that the systems were good systems um, and just need to be used. And I think they need to be more widespread. Um, and it's important, I think, other businesses and, you know, leaders out there share this information, you know, to, for the next level so that mm. a repeat of this situation doesn't occur. And if it does, it shouldn't make such a huge impact on the country. And on the whole, what do you think of the support the government has provided throughout the year, the pandemic thus far? Because there's been a lot of debates about whether guidelines have been clear enough throughout and the fact that yeah. care homes have sometimes had to source, of course, their own PPE equipment. They've had to, as you right. say, be proactive and sort of take their own steps before the government has acted. So how do right. you feel about right. that issue? It's been strained, to say the least. Um, it's not been clear. The guidelines are not clear by any means. Um, you, you've seen the press releases, um, and I've seen perfectly intelligent people looking at those press releases and just having puzzled looks on their faces. Um, we're getting guidelines that are changing daily. They almost we're hourly sometimes they change. Um, it's not clear. And again, I can understand that it's, it's a virus that's evolving. You know, we were, the whole world was taken by surprise. But we are, look, good four, five, you know, more than that, six months into this. Um, and it, it should be clearer. It should be more, much more support available. I don't feel this, there is. But again, are the resources coming, you know, through slowly? Yes, they are. I mean, there are government grants, et cetera. But even on those grants, it's really tough because they'll give you, um, the local authority are given um, a budget. They give the grant, but then they're quite, then they go take the grant back if you don't spend it exactly in the way that they feel that you should be spending it. And that necessarily won't be ideal for that one business, for that one organisation. So they can't just generically, the same as we can't generically put our residents into one box and say, here's your care plan, and all 30 residents will have the same care plan. It's the same way the government can't roll out these um, grants and say that they're helping us with small businesses, they're helping the care sector, they're helping elderly care homes, um, when actually they're not. They actually, it's more of a hindrance because, They'll give the funds, the funds come forward, and then you're going back and you're backtracking. You're saying, well, okay, you've done that, your back extinguisher was there, but we can see it, led, it was because of the COVID, but it's not within our remit, so you can't submit that claim. So we want our money back. So actually, it's worse for us because not only are we spending all the extra time, which means management, staff, all of us, they've taken us away from the residents and actually working on this admin. And even the admin on a daily basis, you can imagine, um, during the pandemic, how much paperwork um, mm. managers had to report. Um, and even our information, we've been giving um, daily information um, to the authorities. And this information had a backlog, I think, I think it was about, if not about 12 weeks worth of work that uh, we put in. But yet that wasn't out there. And the figures from care homes, deaths, et cetera, didn't, it filtered through, as you know. It didn't come through correctly and in hospitals and in homes. So it, it's been a difficult one for everyone. It's a shame the sport wasn't there sooner. And I think it was important the authorities and the government should have asked us directly, you're there, you're providers, what do, what do your businesses need? And we would have really told them clear cut because, you know, we want 
to ensure that we look after our residents and our staff and that we're here at the end of it. So it would have been in our best interest to make sure we give the correct information to the authorities. So it would have been nice if, you know, if nothing else, emails are sent out or phone calls, you know, just to say, look, guys, well, what do you need? What can we do? What do you suggest? Because we, we, we're none the wiser, but you're out there. You're the front line. Um, and that wasn't done. Um, and it was, it was actually people like myself that have actually come forward, you know, out of their comfort zone because we are in the care sector. We're not PR specialists. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't get involved in this type of marketing. We, we're there to, you know, provide a service. And especially with the businesses I run, we're very, very sensitive, you know, to any kind of changes. Um, and it's tough uh, for compliance because we, we've tried to maintain compliance as well as, you know, the change, ever-changing rules. And it hasn't been easy. It really hasn't. And I, I do feel sorry for a lot of providers out there that don't have the systems we have in place. And I have an in-house training department, which I've worked really hard to put together and I'm really, really proud of. And that's really come up trump because um, they've actually rolled out um, our own mini podcast on WhatsApp and whatever else to ensure staff are kind of kept updated in layman's terms on what needs to be done because they are at the front line and they're the ones that need to know clearly what, what they should and shouldn't be doing. Mm. There are some incredibly important points to take away from that, and in fact, I think um, the uh, one one of Labour's uh, prominent, um, of course, figures um, in the Shadow Cabinet, I think it's Shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds, actually said last week um, that the one size fits all support package approach from the government is something that has to be phased out moving forward because it just simply doesn't work as a blanket scheme yeah. for everybody. Of course, so I think that's absolutely right. Very important what you've mentioned there, and considering what sort of staff and also residents have had to deal with during this time mental health and well-being has been right at the forefront of our considerations Mm -hmm. during this uh, pandemic as well both in terms of of course looking after your own as a leader of a business looking after those of your employees but also in your case residents as well yes i can imagine it's been a real Um, challenge from that point of view as well for sure it, it, it absolutely has um, if you look at the residents, um, the residents, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, we look after residents with, you know, complex mental, medical health and mental health needs. And trying to explain to a resident who's enjoyed the use of their home, it, it's their home, it's our care home business, but it's their home that they're living in. And um, they're used to going into their bedrooms, the communal areas, get a bed of fresh air, go to the lounge to have a cup of tea, go to the dining room to have their meal. They had to all be restricted at one stage to each of their own personal bedrooms for their own safety. Now, to explain it to yourself or myself or even one of our children is, is, you know, is a challenge enough. Can you imagine trying to explain to somebody that doesn't quite grasp why, why you're taking that liberty away from them and they don't understand that it is for their best interest and they don't understand how long it's going to take. Um, I mean, even on an ordinary basis, um, they have no concept of time. 15 minutes could be five hours for them. And when you're looking at day in, day out, um, and only engaging the staff that are coming in with full PPE. Um, that in itself is very difficult for residents because residents are used to that, you know, the tactile nature where you can uh, sit down with a resident, you speak to them, they, they look into your eyes, and they, they, a lot of them have to lip read. You know, you talk very gently, slowly to them, they recognise you because they recognise your face. But when you've got these visors on and you've got face masks on, you've got the gloves on, you've got the aprons on, it's really difficult for them and they were quite frightened. And it's taken a while for them, you know, to get used to it. It certainly has. And I can imagine it's been a very difficult uh, time for those staff, especially those that have had to, of course, sacrifice going and living with their families to remain in homes and reduce the risks of infection, for sure. Very, very difficult time for them, of course. And it's going to continue to be um, a challenging time as we move through into the next stages of the pandemic and adjust to the new normal, because there are still so many variables. Of course, we don't know whether there will be a second peak of the virus during the, uh, the winter, for example, which would of course set us back quite away and bring about even more challenges with it um but if we do think about um ricky what the um the next sort of 12 to 18 months might bring Mm. with it as we sort of move Mm. through the uh, the situation further um what do you envision Mm. for yourself and for your company rb care homes and what do you sort of hope to achieve as we sort of adjust to the new normal well the new normal is, is a tough one um I felt, um, as, a, as a business, we've done really, really well. It, um, all testament to the staff, every single last one of them, absolute gems. They've been, you know, over and beyond. And it, it's that industry. You don't just do it for the money. It's genuinely a vocation. Um, it, it's really, really tough. Um, the staff have worked together as a team going forward. 
Um, did you? Uh, I don't know if you've heard about the the general rules that come out, especially in healthcare, where if um, now we have got testing, so the residents and staff get tested, um, and obviously family members, etc., when they're vulnerable, whatever, need to be tested. If a test comes back positive, then for 28 days we have to put our home on lockdown. So it's regardless if it's a resident, member of staff, or a resident or a staff member's family, the whole home has to be in lockdown for 28 days until the home is clear. Now, in that 28 days, if somebody else becomes symptomatic, that's a further 28 days from that person, and it, that continues. Now, if that, if that, if we all adhere to that, which we are having to do at the moment, it's going to substantially um, disrupt all the businesses, um, especially our care home business. You can't bring in new residents, that means. So what do we do? Um, at, at one home, you know, we, the um, pandemic really did hit, hit hard. Um, and we've got less than a third of residents there now. Um, there are residents there that want to come in. We had a waiting list, but because somebody was asymptomatic, we had to then give it another 28 days. And somebody else, it was a further 28 days. Then by that time, the variables are very difficult to control. And also now with lifting a lot of the um, restrictions on social distancing, etc., that's going to have a huge impact because we can't police our staff outside of the care home. We can only give recommendations, same as the government, and hope that they do their best. But then if, if one of their families or themselves then become symptomatic and you know, are tested positive, that's a further 28 days, and that's the whole time, entire time forever. So it's going to have a huge impact on the healthcare sector. It's not going to change, and it's not going to, it's not going to go back to how it was. To a certain extent, I'm pleased it's not going to go back to how it was because there's more safeguards. But then the safeguards have to be, I think, have to be seriously reviewed. There's got to be a contingency there because we've even um, challenged the fact that some of our buildings can be isolated into wings. So why is it the whole home, if we can separate the staff that are uh, clear and the residents that are clear, why is it we can't continue to bring in residents that are safe and well and we can meet the needs of um, rather than having the whole of the home on lockdown individually. Can you see the, mm. the issues that are, this is occurring? And this is it's a serious issue for everybody going forward. It is exactly. And um, it's fantastic, of course, that we are looking to give that a voice as well, because you're right, Ricky, we do need to be hearing uh, the issues uh, from the uh, the sector and exactly what is going on. And it's a shame, actually, we don't have more time on today's programme, because I'm sure we could literally go on mm. about this long into the afternoon for certain. But I have to say, you know, given how informative and insightful it's been having you air these issues with us today, I think it would be fantastic to Thank catch you. up in the next few months and have you back on the programme with us just to see exactly what has changed as we adapt to the new normal and assess where exactly the care sector is at at that point in time and whether it is getting the support it requires. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very much open to that. Like I said to you before, anything that we can do to help each other and help the country out of this, we should all be doing it. There's no more time for being selfish. Um, we coined together a concept called ARAP, which is basically with effective uh, risk assessment planning. And I tell you, it's one of the best things I've ever created and put together because we. this is what's kind of been rolled out to all our care homes, our staff. You know, to the staff straight away, even before we got the government guidelines, the staff were like, this is, this is internally, these are the protocols we have in place. But, you know, in lieu of anything else, this, this works for us. And it really did. And the guidelines were an afterthought almost because us, us providers already had to do this because we were looking after our residents and safeguarding our staff and everyone else. Um, and again, it, to a certain extent, it was being selfish because we wanted to make sure our businesses do, do survive and so do our residents. And looking after our residents was the utmost priority and, and it still is. So, you know, anything we can do as leaders, I think we've got to get our heads together and it's, it's no more of them and us. It, it really has to be, you know, it's a collective. We were all in it. I mean, all of us, including my children, your children, our families, we were all isolated. We, we all went through some level of, of mental anguish and I'm sure yourself Scott you did as well it, mm. it, it was uncertainty none of us knew what was what was around the corner and what we were going to do 
And that remains the case um, as well. Of course, there's still a great deal mm. of uncertainty going forward. We're, things, we're seeing things beginning to reopen again, but we still don't know whether we are going to be set back by that second spike or not, because all of the lockdown um, restrictions that have been lifted are very much reversible. And Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been very clear about that. So given that it is one thing speculating on the future and it's another entirely assessing exactly what's gone on and when the time comes, that's why I think it would be brilliant to actually have a retrospective look at what we've uh, discussed today and just see where we're at a little bit later down the line. Um, I've got to say, Ricky, you're absolutely right as well about um, the mental health issue as well. It's really brought mental health and well-being to the forefront during this time as we've become more socially isolated. So that's hopefully something that we will keep in mind going forward, the importance of those issues. Um, And also as well, that sense of national unity that's come about as a result of this, that sentiment that we're all in this together. Hopefully that's also something that we can carry further into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Ricky, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And until we do touch base again in the future, do most importantly continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Likewise, thank you, Scott. That was Ricky Bibby speaking from RB Care Homes. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, he became one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. All of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up, 
and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide 
and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding my only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, 
but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let 
those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier 
policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.